Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks out meaningful conversations about the issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the world who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. Today, we're going to dip back into the conversation we started in episode six about alternative protein innovations in the seafood space. This time, we're focusing on the plant-based meat craze that is sweeping the nation. Almost everyone listening today will have seen, if not already tried, an impossible burger or a Beyond Breakfast sausage at this point. What you may not know is that there are also companies all over the world working on plant-based products that emulate popular seafood items as well. The plant-based movement is not a fad either. The largest food companies in the world, like Nestle, General Mills, Cargill, and Tyson, have started plant-based research and development divisions or are partnering with startups, like Bumblebee Tuna is with Good Catch. My guest today is taking the nascent industry of plant-based seafood to the next level by actually using 3D bioprinters to create plant-based fillets that look almost exactly like it came from a living, breathing fish. From Vienna, Austria, we're joined by Dr. Robin Simsa. Robin has an extensive background in biotechnology and food technology with a specialty in working with alternative proteins like cell-based and plant-based meats. He's the CEO of Legendary Vish, which he formed with partners Teresa Rothenbuscher and Hakan Gerbitz. Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. You named the names. <laughs> uh, probably uh, butchered them a little bit, but I wanted to make sure and recognize your partners <laughs> who couldn't join us today. Um, that was so great. Let's jump right in. Um, I want to hear about uh, the, what led you first uh, to, to starting the company uh, and, and jumping into this new innovative space. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I've been involved in the, well, what we call alternative protein community for a while. Alternative proteins describe plant-based proteins, cell-based proteins, or basically every method to replace animal products from our food production system due to sustainability issues. So um, I was involved in a PhD project, which allowed me to work also on um, cell-based meats. I performed this at Tufts University at the lab of uh, Professor David Kaplan. And at the same time, I was working also within this PhD project with uh, two of my co-authors on 3D bioprinting applications. So 3D bioprinting is conventionally used to recreate tissues or organs inside a laboratory. But with some adaptions, this method can also be used to fully structure food products and plant proteins. And maybe let me elaborate on why this is important right now. You can buy products such as maybe fish sticks or ground tuna made of plants in the in the US. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, products such as, for example, uh, salmon fillets or um, tuna steaks, these are products which just do not exist on the market right now. So for consumers who want to still um, enjoy salmon fillets, but in a more sustainable way, there's hardly any options. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's, that has been what has caused the plant-based movement to accelerate so rapidly of recent is, you know, like to your point, we've had plant-based products on the market for decades, um, but they weren't particularly good uh, and they, they didn't look like conventional products. So I think 
Um, their market share was at first limited to, you know, really dedicated vegans and vegetarians. Um, but mm. then you in the beef space, you had companies like Impossible and Beyond that created a product that looked like conventional beef, uh, which I think then attracted new market share from folks like myself who are sort of flexitarians um, who wanted, you know, still will probably have some animal product in my diet, but I, want, I was really curious and wanted to try it because it looked like the conventional product. Um, and to your point uh, about seafood, there, there are things out there right now, but if I want to cook a, a filet of salmon, uh, you know, or cod or something else that looks like fish, there, I, I don't see that on the, on the market yet. Mm. Yeah, that's right. A product such as sushi, for example, um, which is a raw product every year. There are, for example, thousands of hospitalizations due to the accumulation of, for example, heavy metals or microplastics in the meat of seafood, because these are substances that just land in the ocean because of our industry activities. And um, yeah, this is certainly something that should be avoided, for example, with plant based products. So, yeah, you touched on I was I was about to ask you why. Um, and 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 I think that uh, a lot of folks have the concern um, about what might be in their wild caught or aquacultured seafood. And I think we've made a lot of progress on, on some of those areas, but some things like microplastics are completely out of our control. Uh, no, no matter how much fisheries management you put on the water um, or making sure there's not slave labor or some of the other problems that occur in fishing, um, microplastics seems to be a real serious problem. So is, was that one of the driving forces for you for, for moving into this space? For me, first of all, one of the driving forces to move a bit away from cell-based meats was the first time I ever tried an impossible burger. You mentioned it before. I always thought that plant-based meats will never be able to fully recreate this culinary experience and the joy that we have when eating meat or seafood. And then I remember the first time I tried the uh, Impossible Burger and I was blown away like a wow moment for me because I thought, uh, uh, wow, that's, that's exceptional, the taste that this can achieve with a little recombinant technology. And then I started to look more into the plant-based field and I think that there's a lot of room to grow, but also for, let's say, um, hybrid products, for example. So what uh, Impossible Foods, for instance, does is they take a single protein, which is not even from animals, but from plants and adds it to the other plant-based components. And this alone makes the taste so much better. And I believe that if we continue doing this, for instance, not think of it as only it's a, it's a veggie burger or a cell-based burger, but take components from both and put it together. There's a lot of opportunities there, actually, to really recreate the flavor and taste of meat. So were, were you a seafood lover before or have you been, a, are you a vegetarian or? I try to be a vegetarian, but when my grandmother cooks something nice, then sometimes I don't say no. But uh, I'm not the biggest seafood lover, actually. I just mm. really like to work in this space and, and try to well, work on something that has an impact. So what are, what are the species that you have decided to start with um, for creating an analog version that's plant-based? Our first product will be salmon fillets. And that's for two reasons. First of all, because it's the second most consumed seafood in the world. So it's very, um, it has a high market value, but then also because of its unique um, structure and, and characteristics. If you think of a salmon fillet, it has the orange muscle stripes and the white connective tissue stripes in between, which is um, something that you can hardly produce with conventional 
production methods if you think of plant-based meat. So it's really an ideal product for us because of the complexity that it has and the complexity that we can recreate with the 3D printer. Yeah, let's talk about the 3D, 3D printing technology for a minute because a lot of people have heard that term, but they've never seen it before. I mean, that's not a product, like a household product yet. Um, but people are hearing of 3D printing for even large scale products like houses, you know, little cottages that you can print um, to household items. But mm -hmm. a, a 3D bio printer is certainly something that the average person has never seen before. Just describe the technology there and how it works. Well, I think 3D printers are getting more and more popular. You can think of the classical desktop printers, which print uh, something in plastic, for example. Like these are uh, quite affordable by now. But the basic technology it uses, there are different ones. I will make it a bit more simple. But it's based on uh, often extrusion technology, which means that you apply pressure and in some cases heat in order to um, press out the material through a die. So what happens there can be compared to the conventional technology used in the typical veggie burgers. If you think of a veggie burger, this undergoes a process which is called high moisture extrusion, where you have these massive big machines of um, yeah, large size. And, and there you have uh, high shear forces, high pressure and high temperature, which leads to plant proteins that you add to the process to denature. That means they lose their native form. And with the pressure you apply and the temperature, they can realign to one another and form this, um, this fibrous products, which we see, for example, in these veggie burgers. And what we now would like to do is to miniaturize this process so that we can also have a control over the shape and form of the final product. Because right now it's only used for a homogenous product. If you think of a hamburger, it's, um, yeah, there's no complexity really in there. But if you think of a steak, there you have uh, parts with more fat, you have parts with more meat, you have, you have all these kinds of different, uh, different components there. And there we believe you really need an additive manufacturing technology to, to create these kind of products. Yeah, so for those of you at home listening, you know, with my culinary hat on, the, the very, very simple version of extrusion that you would be familiar with is making sausage at home, like meat coming out of a meat grinder, you know, through a nozzle and making, uh, making sausage. So the very basic version of extrusion that most people are very familiar with. Now imagine that on a, on a complex axis that could spin around and, and create shapes and then having multiple nozzles uh, with multiple product. Um, and for example, I'll put up a photo of the, the uh, sushi um, product that you have produced as, as a test and where you can now see the, the orange, uh, the replication of the orange muscle tissue you described, uh, as well as the white connective tissue. So you end up with a printed product that looks damn near, I, I mean, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> Uh, between a small piece of salmon sushi on, on, on a little bit of rice. Mm, and you're not the only one. Most people that we show this image, they, they don't know which one is the 3D printed one and which one is the conventional salmon. Also from the taste side, the products are already very good and many people don't know the difference. However, it's very hard or maybe it's the biggest challenge to also recreate the mouthfeel. So for example, if you bite into it, uh, does it have to write um the right uh, elasticity does it have the right um the right stiffness the right water holding capacity these are all things that uh, you need to look at and this is certainly the biggest challenge for for all of these products 
So where are you in that process, uh, you know, as you're doing that R&D and you're testing, how far out are you from looking at, at going to market? Mm, there are certainly components of the printer that we need to develop further. So this extrusion processes that I described before that are right now used for the veggie burger, they, for example, use high pressure and temperature. And these are, um, these are properties that are normally not added to bioprinters or also to conventional printers, which can process a high protein mass, which is, um, which is the thing that we put inside, basically. So we need to further develop um, certain components on the printer that allow us to add this temperature and pressure to the to the final product. So it's, it's not only the innovation of the final product, you actually have to create a manufacturing process that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, it's pretty much the hardware that is not applied so far, but also 3D footprinting in general. It's just a very new new field to our knowledge. There are not many companies in the world which are focusing on 3D footprinting uh, in general, maybe meat or other, um, other foods. There's one company in Barcelona, for example, called Natural Machines, and they're one of the market leader. And they have quite a cool process. They can print up to five different um, five different ingredients together and create also complex products. Um, and they already talk about 4D printing, which means that you you already cook the pro product during the process. So in the future, this could lead, for example, that maybe you're a family and the father wants to eat meat and the mother fish and the daughter uh, pasta or something. And you go to the printer and you give him... Uh, you type in whatever you like to eat and you already take out the cooked food like in a microwave. So it's maybe a bit uh, unusual or rare for some people to hear something like this. But uh, I think it also offers unique opportunities. Well, we don't have hoverboards and flying cars yet, but uh, <laughs> it sounds like we're, we're uh, re pretty close to back to the future on food. Uh, that's well, Star a, Trek predicted the yeah, food printing. So. Yeah, that's shocking and exciting. Um, so you mentioned you know miniaturizing the process but then once you perfect it then you've got to work backwards and go to scale um, what is it what would it what a what would a manufacturing facility look like describe it for, for our audience and how you would then be producing at large enough scale to be profitable mm. it depends a bit on the process setup but in general you can think of it as a sort of conveyor belt system so it's not that similar to the household desktop printer that many people have in mind when you talk about 3D printing. It's more of a um, robotic approach, maybe, where if you convey your belt and certain print parts print uh, certain layers of the product, while others print different ones. Maybe you also have spray elements which add um, lipids or fats of some sort. Uh, yeah, this is more how you can think of it. Okay, so like a, a large facility, with a bunch of conveyor belts, um, and then and then developing a process for some sort sort of packaging. Um, mm -hmm. And are you planning on your product? I assume that based on the photos, your primary target is is to have a a product that is an analog to raw fish first, uh, that mm -hmm. could then be cooked or then or be eaten as a as a sushi type product. Yeah, that's correct. And let me ask you a question. Do you do you like to eat sushi? I do. I yeah. Do. And have you tried to make sushi yourself often? I have. Uh, I had to in culinary school. Um, 
Uh, and uh, I was not good at it. And, and now I, I get why uh, people who, who, who can spend 50 years of their life perfecting that art because it is not easy. <laughs> That's true. And um, you were actually not alone with this. Actually, most people, like more than 90% of the people, they eat sushi, not not at home, but in restaurants. And that's why I think that something like sushi that people like to eat outside would be an ideal, ideal product for people to try also as part of the restaurant experience to go there and see like, oh, wow, they have a new um, legendary salmon in our case, for example, like a plant-based salmon. Why not try this? We also, like you said before, um, like beyond meat, we do not target necessarily vegans or vegetarians, but actually everyone who would like to make a little shift to the diet once in a while. But but not necessarily become a vegetarian altogether. Yeah, I think that's the real, I mean, I'm certainly in that category and I think that's the real market share opportunity is folks like myself who are uncomfortable with the, the conventional food system and, and I want to tweak my diet. I want some alternatives that I find palatable so I can reduce my overall consumption of animal protein uh, to help with things like climate change. Um, uh, but I probably in my lifetime wouldn't make the full shift. Uh, and I think there's a lot of folks out there that, that are in that space and but looking for a product that they, that is, that really has the taste um, that is, is comparable to con the conventional product, which brings up the question. Um, what is the, you know, what is, what goes into the product? And, and I preface that with one of the knocks against impossible or beyond um, has been that while you are shifting away from some of the animal agriculture that causes environmental problem, you may not necessarily be shifting to something that's more nutritious uh, because there's a lot of things that, you know, go into making that product look and feel like the conventional product that we still don't know a lot about the nutritional value yet. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that about your, your product? Yes, the nutritional value is important for us. Uh, there are certain companies out there which offer plant-based seafood, which mainly consists of some sort of carbohydrates, but not a lot of protein. And um, for us, it's important that also it has a high protein content, a high omega-3 fatty acid content, that it's not only consumed because it tastes good, but also because it, uh, it is healthy for the for the consumers yeah and in general i think what you said before regarding the the taste of the product i think that's actually the key point of all these new new products that are coming out because replacing proteins for example from animals with proteins from plants is very easy we can do this uh, for a long time now from a nutritional standpoint it's not absolutely necessary to consume meat but we just like to taste so much and i believe that this is really um, that this is what needs to be addressed, the taste and the whole experience of, of eating, eating, for example, seafood in this case. There are other companies, for example, which are working with um, insects. Maybe you tried this before. And it's an interesting approach to generate proteins with less environmental impact, but it just do not give us the same sensation as um, biting into a steak or another kind of meat. I need to take a quick break uh, to recognize our sponsors, but when we come back, I, I want to hear a little bit more about the 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 actual ingredients that you're looking and including in in, in the product, because um, uh, I'm just fascinated by the process. Uh, we'll be right back. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by. 
LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. Uh, let, let's pick up where we left off. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the actual ingredients that you're working with in order to come up with the nutritional value, the look, the taste, the color uh, as well, mm. uh, which would be an important part of, you know, replicating a, a salmon in particular, which has just such a beautiful, vibrant, that vibrant orange to it. That's true. So basically the ingredients can be compared with the plant-based products that you have on the market right now already. Think of the veggie burger. So we do not do a lot of innovation on the ingredient side. We do more innovation on the process technology side. Mm -hmm. Ingredients can include, for example, pea protein or mushroom protein is what we're experimenting right now. Mostly uh, different algae extracts, for example, for taste, different kind of vegetable oils. But the ingredients are pretty well established and most of them can be bought in a regular supermarket or um, online. Yeah, that, that's good to hear because um, I think that's one of the things that people are concerned about is, is finding a bunch of th things on the back of a label that they can't pronounce and that they've never heard of, <laughs> um, you know, and I think will help with uptake. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your, your plans moving forward. Um, you know, some, some companies like um, the company that makes the Good Catch product, they've partnered up with Bumblebee Tuna, for example. Um, you know, uh, what's your plan in going to market with this and, and, and when and where we might see it? Mm -hmm. We're still early in the process. We hope that we can enter the market in Europe by 2022 and then expand later 2023 or 2024 to the U.S. as well. And already now we're overwhelmed by the, by the support we're getting from around the world. Many people seem to be very interested and even excited about these kind of products and receive messages from the US, but also from Brazil. Yesterday, someone from Russia wrote us from uh, China about people who really look forward to these kind of products. People who write us, I really love uh, salmon, but um, I don't like how the current food system is um, producing salmon. So I think there's a lot of demand for, for these kind of products. And um, yes, selling them will be, will be maybe the, the least difficult part. Now we're developing the technology first. 
Yeah, that, that, I think you're probably right there. Um, you're trailblazing now on the manufacturing piece, but uh, I do think there's going to be a lot of demand for it. Um, what's the, what's your thinking on uh, uh, after salmon um, uh, in terms of other species that you might t tackle? I think tuna would be the the logical next choice, first of all, because it's a very large market and also from the sustainability aspect. Um, salmon, there's a lot of things which are wrong in the current system of producing salmon in aquaculture farm. And most of the salmon, more than 90% of the world is produced by uh, aquaculture. And there, for instance, you use antibiotics, growth hormones. It's just too many fish in a too small area. It, kind of um, makes the surrounding environment uh, toxic for other species, et cetera, or for the, for the um, plants growing there. So this is certainly not good. But regarding tuna, that's actually something which is taken out from the ocean. It's not farmed. And there is a real danger that we run into overfishing or even extinction of, of tuna within our lifetimes, which would be, a, um, would be terrible, I think, if, if this would happen. Also, um, there you have massive bycatching problems. So up to 40% of all fish caught in the ocean is actually bycatch. So fish or other species, which is caught needlessly and, uh, and basically dropped back into the ocean dead, such as uh, dolphins or turtles or, or other species. So I think from a sustainability point, finding a good um, solution for tuna would be a more sustainable solution for tuna. That would be a great, great goal to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I agree with, especially on the bluefin tuna side. Um, uh, you know, I'm worried about the long-term sustainability of that species. Um, and I think it's smart to figure out some alternatives where you could take some pressure off of the wild species. Um, you know, in a lot of places in the country, we're, I mean, in the world and, and the U.S. in particular, we're, we're finally getting fisheries management right and we're rebuilding a lot of these wild stocks. Um, but, you know, the, the concern that I have long term is, is the growth uh, that we're seeing. I mean, we're on track to have about 9.7 billion people by 2050. Um, in, in our current wild capture, our aquaculture rates, you can't feed that many people. Um, we have to figure out a way to put some, other, some alternative protein on the table um, in order to just feed the planet. Um, not to mention also doing it in a way that we're not causing harm to the planet. Um, so I, you know, while I am an, a fan of aquaculture, if it's done right, and a fan of wild capture fisheries, if done right, uh, I think most people would agree we need to take all the tools in the toolbox, um, including alternative protein and layer them into options so we can feed everybody and, and, and heal the planet that we've done quite a bit of damage to. Yes, and I think we need to find um, find systems that everybody adheres to. Now, also, um, you read in the news about a large Chinese fisher fleet in uh, Galapagos Islands, and like people in large parts of the world don't seem to respect the um, restrictions that are put on fishery in order not to cause overfishing. And I think this needs to change. And at the end, it's a economies of scale. Uh, well. Um, Many people buy the cheapest products or want to have cheaper and cheaper products. And um, this, this cannot work forever like this, I believe. I think if you have alternative products for this, and this is a key point that plant-based products in the beginning, maybe they will be higher priced than the conventional seafood product because they did not have 50 or 60 or 70 years of optimization. But um, eventually, when they will become cheaper than the conventional fish, I think that's when we will see the real change. So talk to me a little bit about um, 
your vision for the future? I mean, you, you gave us a glimpse of sort of the home use of 3D printing and how you could maybe, you know, customize a meal um, on demand at home. Um, but in terms of uh, the plant-based 3D printing industry, what do, you, what do you think the next 10 years look like um, for both your company and others that are moving into this space? I see. We see. I think we see more and more products entering the market, and I believe they will become more and more complex. So, for us, for example, in the beginning, such as a salmon sushi is already complex. A salmon fillet is another level of complexity. When you also add, for example, the skin, or maybe even the bones for some people who like it, maybe even have the whole animal at one point. Um, I think we will see more and more of these um, high complex products, which which address different consumers. Because at the end, everybody likes different things. And if you only offer hamburgers, then okay, you catch people who like to eat a hamburger right now, but people who like to eat a steak or a fish fillet, they will not have an alternative. And I think it's important that there are more products which are more sustainable for also these consumers. Yeah, I think that's right. What a fascinating idea of printing a whole fish. Uh, I wouldn't even have occurred to me, but I guess at the point that you're printing, you know, fillets, uh, you know, that could be very possible at some point in the future. It's the next step, I think, yeah. I mean, for some products, it makes sense. For others, not so much. For example, um, shrimp, different production methods may be more useful or all kind of um, shellfish or oyster. It's just, um, it can be easier recreated with other other food processing methods. But for this these high complex food products, I think their 3D printing is really, um, or additive manufacturing is the way to go. Hmm. So what's, uh, what's next for, for you and the company? Um, are you in the middle of a raise or are you, uh, you know, what, what's the next steps for Legendary Vish? We're right in a fundraising talk with a university here about a collaboration on the food processing side. We're developing our prototypes further. Right now we also have a, plant-based salmon spread product for people to try the taste and to see um, that it really tastes like conventional salmon, that they don't need to choose between is it more sustainable or does it taste good, but a combination of both. Um, yeah, and just get our heads down and work on the tech development. From a culinary point of view, I'm, I'm curious about the spread. Is it, is it emulate cured salmon or smoked salmon? Right now we use a raw salmon um, flavor that we have. Um, we can also make smoked salmon, but uh, we did not release this product yet. We're thinking about this, but then also we're really more excited about the texturized salmon because this is also the product that's more consumed. If you think of tuna, most consumed uh, canned and or untexturized mm. but something like salmon this is mostly consumed in a full texturized form so or but less in a spread product for example yeah very interesting um well i'm sure that i probably didn't ask you something that you wish i had um that you want to make sure people know about the company and, and, the, and the space that you're innovating in um so feel free to tell us anything that we missed I think the exciting thing about 3D food printing is that it not only allows us to recreate realistic structures, for example, of salmon, but also create new structures or 
challenge maybe our perception of food. So we think of a salmon fillet as having these white stripes and the orange muscle in between and having a certain form, but we could also create, for instance, spiral forms or zigzag forms or uh, triangles so we can recreate uh, the shape of a fish. That's the exciting thing about 3D footprinting. You can recreate all shapes imagine or many shapes that you can imagine. Or you could also um, create a salmon fillet which tastes like tuna or vice versa. Or you can create something which is half salmon, half tuna. So there's the, the opportunities are endless. And I think that's really exciting. This is the, the cool point about this. Like maybe people don't only want to try what they already know, but also want to try new things. Well, with my chef hat on, that, uh, that sounds pretty exciting. Uh, not, to be, not to be constrained by the traditional product uh, or the, you know, the conventional flavor profiles, uh, but to really get an opportunity to experiment. So, well, I think it's, I think it's uh, incredible what you're doing. Um, and like I said, I think it's a game changer because while there's plant-based products out there that are becoming more and more palatable for non-vegetarians, uh, the mouthfeel and the texture <clears throat> and the taste really is important. Um, and we, we eating is a full sensory experience. I learned that in culinary school early on. And the first thing you eat with is your eyes. And if it doesn't look like an attractive product, you have made a snap judge decision about that. <clears throat> and it's going to influence how it tastes to you. So when you can see a product that has the incredible complexity of the prototypes that you're putting out, where you can see that connective tissue and it looks like a piece of salmon filet, um, you're going to get a lot higher receptivity. And I think that's really exciting. And, and uh, kudos to you for, for that innovation. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Hope to bring it to the U.S. soon. Um, oh, absolutely. I, and if you need a tester, uh, you know, or, or somebody <laughs> on the culinary staff, uh, let me know because I'd love to be up first in line. Uh, sure. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think uh, the audience will have learned a lot about this, about something that they hadn't heard of yet. Uh, and we'll make sure in the video, show everybody uh, the photos uh, of the prototypes. And I think their, their mind is going to be blown. <laughs> Let's hope so. Thank you again to Dr. Robin Simsa, the CEO of Legendary Vish, uh, for joining us from Vienna uh, to give us a rundown on the future of 3D printed seafood alternatives. The prototypes look stunning, and I can't wait to put their product to the taste test soon when it comes out. Thank you to everyone listening to today's episode. Uh, as always, I welcome your feedback and show ideas, and I can be reached at robertevansjones.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. to access additional episodes and get them delivered directly to your device. Until next time, I wish you calm seas.